This is a talk by Todd Corbett titled From Bardo to Awakening, recorded June 20th, 2010 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. In the Tibetan Book of the Dead, it is said that the moment of death is a great opportunity to awaken. Of course, most of us think, well, why would we want to be awakened if we're dead? <laughs> well, this is the paradox of this whole thing. Awakening is awakening out of the duality of life and death. That sounds really crazy. We know what death is. We know what life is. They're very different, or so it appears. When we see into the nature of death, we see into the nature of life. We recognize our eternal nature, what has always been, what we have always been. The Tibetan Book of the Dead is a technical manual that describes in detail the various stages of dying and death and the afterlife in their way of seeing things. And it describes all of the experiences that can be expected along the way. And it does this so that they don't distract us and delude us as we are going through these changes, so that we can actually notice what is taking place, so that we can awaken. The whole point of the Tibetan Book of the Dead is to show us how to be enlightened to our true nature, to be freed from duality at the moment of death. In the Tibetan Book of the Dead, life and death are referred to as bardo states. Bardo is an island of experience, an island of duality that rises up in the midst of consciousness, in the midst of non-duality. And as it arises up, it has a birth and it has a death. And so, when we are born, then we have life, and then at the moment of death, that life ends. That is the bardo of life. The moment of death, after our last breath, and death is here, there is an opening. And in that moment, we have the opportunity to recognize what we are. The reason that death is a great opportunity is that the end of the bardo of life, the clear light of awareness shows itself nakedly. There's no obstruction to seeing it. And that's because the mind is what has died. The mind is no longer there. 
And the light of consciousness is showing itself nakedly in that moment. All we need to do in that moment is recognize that that light is our own consciousness. And if we recognize that it is our own consciousness, we're awake. The whole thing changes. What we are is suddenly recognized in its completeness. We recognize that everything is the clear light. So at the moment of death, the spell of duality is broken. If you don't recognize in this moment, however, then you start moving into the next bardo. The Tibetan Book of the Dead describes ways of working with these, these other bardos. And actually, there's another point where the clear light shows itself again nakedly. And then we move into the bardo of becoming and transmigration. And it's harder at that point to waken. Or at least, uh, it, it appears that way prior to doing practice the actual title of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, is liberation through hearing during the intermediate state. And the reason it's called this liberation through hearing is that it is often read to the dying person as they're moving through this process to keep them on track so that they aren't distracted by mind states because there are many very powerful dream-like mind states that move in and, and captivate attention. And so constantly then, the, the person reading, who needs to be trained in this process, can then guide them back and keep showing them, now oh, look, can you see this? You know, just a kind of a guiding process. So it's liberation through hearing during the intermediate state. And the intermediate state is the bardo. The intermediate state is the intermediate meaning it's in the middle. Here we have vast consciousness and we have this little island, like an island in the sea of consciousness. So this is the intermediate state. And when we're going through the process of dying, we are in the state of duality. The way to work with the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and it is highly recommended all the way through, is to be mindful. The Buddha had this to say about mindfulness. He said, mindfulness is the path to immortality and negligence is the path to death. The vigilant never die, whereas the negligent are the living dead. A little strong. <laughs> the living dead, meaning that we live in imagination. We aren't truly alive in his way of seeing things. We're not truly alive because we don't recognize who we are or what we are. Mindfulness is this vigilance of attention. A samsaric mind is not interested in waking up. It knows what it wants, and it's going for it. 
The only problem with it is that it's never satisfied. Once we begin to recognize that dissatisfaction, we already have a degree of mindfulness. It's already happening. We've noticed something about our life. It requires a bit of attention. We noticed we've, we've never in our whole life gotten satisfied through worldly striving. Oh, maybe for a little while, but it doesn't last. Samsaric mind is mechanistic and empty. The mindfulness needs to be based on a deep intention. If we don't have an intention to pay attention, we won't. But we get this intention by our experience of dissatisfaction. It keeps driving us. We keep wondering, well, why do I feel dissatisfied? And so we start to pay a bit of attention. Mindfulness practice. Mindfulness rests attention in now. It's just being present with what's arising in this moment. Just as you did this meditation earlier, resting with the immediacy of the sensation breathing. And through that process, we begin to recognize thought and feeling stories. They're arising. We recognize, we see the nakedness of the thought. It's not my thought. It's just thought. Feeling arises. Sadness. I'm so sad. But when we look, we discover it's not personal. It's sadness. It's this naked sadness. And through that process, we begin to connect with all of humanity. We realize that the world is full of sadness. And we have an opportunity in a moment of sadness to know that, (coughs) to experience that directly. And it is illuminating. At the same time, we relinquish my sadness. And we become more aware in that way. We develop a kind of a global awareness. There's more space in that. What happens in our world is that through inattention, we develop this habitual make-believe world. And belief becomes fact. It's just how it is. This is how a Bardo state comes into being. Dualistic stories dictate what we see. For example, we don't see timeless nature because we believe in time and continuity. It's just our experience, so we can't see it. We can't see timelessness. We don't see the oneness of things because we believe that we are separate. You can see our beliefs limit us tremendously. So the process of mindfulness is a process of examining the belief structures to see what is truly there and what is driving it. What is driving it is emotion. Feeling separate drives it. We feel separate and we see everything is separate, but it's a feeling of not enoughness. 
a feeling of dissatisfaction. We want to feel whole, so we strive. We strive, and through the process of striving, we create time and space. It all happens as one felt swoop. It's just one process. It all comes into being in that way. Each time we strive and we identify with striving, we create, we reify the belief in time and in space. Time and space are really not different. They are the same delusion. This is how we veil the clear light. This is how the bardo comes into being and it becomes impenetrable to our attention until we bring mindfulness into it. And we start examining in this moment, not allowing stories to carry us away. We see what is here now and space just naturally begins to open. The stories give us this claustrophobic sense because we believe them. So our stories, our beliefs, veil the reality of what we are. We are always striving to be whole. But if we would stop striving, we'd recognize we're already whole. There's nothing to get. We're already that. It's just like if I were to say to you right now, sit down. And you were trying to sit down. And you didn't recognize the dilemma. You would be befuddled by that. Trying to sit down. Well, you're already sitting down. This is the problem, only it's much more convoluted in our day-to-day life, as we discover. But mindfulness is the simplicity we bring to it. And when we, when we become committed with a deep intention to be mindful, the whole thing just starts to expose itself. We begin to see it as it truly is. We see the impermanence of things. We see it moment to moment. In mindfulness, we discover what we could only call a radical impermanence. We see the facade of duration. We begin to recognize what is happening in this moment is a constant arising and passing away, a constant dissolving, birthing and deathing constantly. The whole story of duration of things grow old in time, it's a story. It's a useful story because if we examine it, it takes us to this. We examine it and we start examining time. What is time? Well, we we take time to be real. We may know, we've read a lot of spiritual texts, and they say, you know, the power of now. It's just now. But this isn't our experience. We read these things, we understand them, but then we're living in time. We don't recognize timelessness in our experience. Let's just look at this for a moment. 
I'm going to snap my fingers. That's in the future. Okay, it's coming. <laughs> snap my fingers. Here it comes. See, it's in the future. And now, it's here. Oh, or is it? Where is it? Oh, it's here. Here, now, now, now. The future is an idea arising now. And then, yeah, now. But where is that? It's already gone. It's in some past. But if we look at that, we realize the past, when we think of it, it's just now. It can never be another time. So we recognize time is this illusion, but yet we believe it in everything that we do. We're constantly striving towards something else, creating time. So how does this happen? This is belief. This is the way belief operates. It's solidly in place. And the only way to transform it is to examine it nakedly, without expectation. If we want to get rid of time, we're in deep trouble. We will never get rid of time, because time is not real. In the same way that when we strive for enlightenment, enlightenment is not real. We are already enlightened. We are already what we are seeking. So we manufacture these delusions, and then we run after them. And our life develops in that way. Our life of samsaric delusion. Duality. Bardos. How many people here got a glimpse of timelessness in that exercise? Yeah. Why don't you just raise your hand? <laughs> so, so everything is arising now, and the only thing that makes it seem otherwise is our thoughts about it. The thoughts are always arising now, pointing to some other time, which is imaginary. Purely imaginary. It's a mind-stopper when you really get this one. The point is, though, that having had that experience is not enough. We must begin to see this regularly. And we see it regularly if we practice mindfulness. And we use that as something to encourage attention to go to. So we're practicing mindfulness. Now we become aware of, wow, I'm believing in time. So we feel the sensation of temporal passing and we just become aware of it. And in seeing it in that way, it transforms. It just naturally transforms because it's happening now. If we have a belief about time, we can't recognize the clear light. The clear light is obscured by belief. Belief is the whole mechanism of the bardo. So, we need to be aware of this false continuity. We look around and go, well, that's impossible. It's, it's happening in time. The world, the world. It's, how can you say there's no time? The mind is so strong about this. And it's just this little practice of mindfulness. You just watch that thought arise and you see what it is. It's thought arising now. So there's a simplicity that begins to develop here. And it's through the simplicity that we recognize 
that though time is arising in an in a, in imaginary way, we're not resisting it, we're not in a big battle about it, we recognize what it truly is. And it's staggering. Now, to recognize Bardo's, we mentioned that Bardo has a beginning and it has an ending. So, it's important that we be aware of Bardo's in this way. We can notice the sense of self arising in one moment, coming into being and passing away. Now, if you watch, how does this actually take place? It takes place in one thought, one feeling, one imagination. We just observe it arise, and when it passes away, that is the end of a bardo. You know, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, they talk about this process, the ending of life, and the moment of death. When in actuality, if when we do the practice, mindfulness practice, we discover that in every moment, every thought is a bardo. Every feeling is a bardo. They're all arising, and when they pass away, there is this opportunity to notice, just as in physical death, to notice the clear light. Right there. Right there. So in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, we just have this one opportunity, or so it appears when you read the text. But in our life, every moment is an opportunity. Every moment. Uh, do you know what bardo means? Yes, it means the intermediate state, it, it, or interval. Yes, it's an interval, and it's and, and as I said before, it's like a it's like an island of experience in the ocean of consciousness. What happens is there is this little bardo, this little island of experience, and then though like we're traveling, we get on the climb up on the island, and we run across to the other side, and then oh. There's this space. So we jump off it, we jump off into the ocean, and we swim a little bit, and then we come to another island. And that would be analogous to the island of life and then the island of death. So we're but in this swimming, we're swimming in the light of consciousness. Does that help? Yeah, I just I thought I remembered that one translation I read was interval. It is it is an interval. But you know, it's an interval of what? An interval of duality arising within time and space. Yes. There are other ways of talking about it. You can talk about the bardo of the space itself, but that becomes confusing in a way because once you recognize the space, you're no longer in bardos. They're no longer real to you. So I, in most of the stuff that I've read, they just talk about bardo as delusion. It is a delusion if you see the light and don't recognize that it's your own mind. Does that make sense? Yeah. Hey, Todd. Yeah. Um, when you were saying every moment is an opportunity, did you mean every for awakening? Or? Yes. Oh, okay. Awakening. Every moment that, that a bardo ends, for example, a thought arises, 
If we can be that present, if the moment that thought ends, there is this, this clear light is showing itself. The problem we have, though, is that there is an emotional sense of me that fills those spaces. We can't recognize the light because the, the mind is so busy struggling to cover up the clear light. Because the agenda of the mind is to protect itself. Once we recognize the clear light, the gig is up for the self. It's over. Because it doesn't have any basis. It has no reality. And the, and the whole job of the mind is to continue to reify itself. When we start doing mindfulness practice, we are really turning that whole process upside down. We're turning it onto its head. So, uh, here's a quote by Rabbi Joseph Ben Shalom of Barcelona. And he tells us that in every transformation of reality, in every change of form, or every time the stature of a thing is altered, the abyss of nothingness is crossed and for a fleeting mystical moment becomes visible. Our problem is we ignore that. We don't see it because we have this emotional sense of me that doesn't want to see it. Mindfulness practice, though, it offers this amazing possibility. With mindfulness, as we become astute in our practice, we can notice that emotional sense of me. We can feel the emotion, even subtle emotions. And when we see them, they are in our awareness, they can liberate themselves. Just by seeing them, a lot of our delusion is we have been ignoring so much. We turn away. We don't even know we're doing it. And so we... we hide from it, but if we put attention on it and we actually recognize what it is that's obstructing us, it's amazing. Because then it has the opportunity to fall away. And in the moment of falling away, just like any death, we have the opportunity to notice the clear light. And again, seeing the clear light is not enlightenment. Because we have to recognize when we see it, we have to recognize it is our own mind. But at the moment of death, this is a real possibility. And the reason it becomes a real possibility in the Tibetan teachings is that they recommend that we become very familiar with the space, you know, the spaciousness that we develop in, in, in mindfulness practice. Become very familiar with that. And and also to stabilize our attention, to be able to rest in that. So that in the moment in which the mind disappears in death, we can just notice that space, which is our own mind. And, and if we've been doing practices, we will notice, and we can wake up right there. Is that the gap? Is yeah, it's, gap? it's what we call the gap. Yeah, oh, yeah I mean, in, in other teachings that I've given. Yeah, it's, it's the gap of no mind. It's spaciousness, just showing itself. It's the clear light. The reason we don't always recognize it, though, is, I, as I mentioned before, there's this usually a subtle emotional process that's veiling it. It's kind of um, 
Isn't it also true when you're little, you have to develop the little mind to hold this world together that way. So That's that right. can make it. It does seem that way. It wouldn't, yeah. make, it wouldn't make sense if we did learn how to hold it together. That's true. And now you're telling us to not, to not hold it together. There's a way of looking at this. It's sort of like a maturational process. The reality is, is here. We need to develop as a child, you know, because this is the, this is the game we're born into. And we are living this delusion. And if it were possible that we were somehow not living this delusion, then it maybe wouldn't be necessary. But we are. And what we do is we start where we are, and we learn all of these things. And it's, there's nothing wrong with any of it, of course. It's just that at some point we begin to discover that we are suffering, that we are dissatisfied. And it's only when we start to realize we're dissatisfied that all of these practices become meaningful to us. It just makes sense if we learn to hold it together, we have to be able to learn how to not hold it together. It's all learned. All of it. You're right. We aren't trying to dissolve all of our beliefs. We just don't want... It's the emotional component, the grasping at it, the belief in it that makes it real that is the delusion. The, the, the display is quite beautiful, and it is uh, quite intricate and very functional. And we wouldn't really want it to be different. It's not about changing anything. It's about, it's about awakening to the reality that it is all you. It's all the clear light. All of it. Whatever we see, no matter how concrete it appears. Doesn't it seem like it would take a certain amount of intelligence, and those of us, like myself, is just as average intelligence, seems like it's, not, it's more dense to me or something. Someone who's really bright probably says, oh yeah, I get that. I think it might be the other way around, actually. <laughs> My experience is, you know, I don't particularly feel like I'm all that bright. I, I, and I, my sense is that a, a, a brilliant intelligence can be can really mislead you. Can I had I had a brother that was a very bright guy that 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 was always struggling and and he wasn't able to just rest into his experience because he always felt that he understood and knew what it was that was taking place. And really, in mindfulness practice, if you have those kinds of beliefs, they need to be seen. And if if they are so strong that you really believe they're real, you won't see them. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say it's more. It, it really is much more of an unlearning because um, when you think about it, when we're very, very small, I mean, I've been watching uh, recently a lot of very young humans and their parents, and realizing to what extent we we get totally rewarded to know what something is. This is, but all it is is a label, a word. You know, that's blue. Or this is cup, and when the kid gets it right, it's like, yes, yes, it's, it's a blue. Cup. <laughs> that's right. And, but that's not what it is at all. It's just we learn the game, and we get so powerfully rewarded for it throughout most of our lives. Even if we're old and we and we have several PhDs, we're still getting rewarded by society because we're the guy who knows. That's right. So that's just the bardo. We buy into the bardo. We don't have to change anything. So we can actually do all that stuff and still see. So, you know, if 
time is this concept, and the Vardo is a concept of, you know, which is an interval, and, you know, time is an interval, and all this is concept. And you're talking about, like, the rising and falling, and it's the gap in between that. So is there, is that delusion also, that there's a rising and falling? Is everything the gap? Everything is the gap. And that's what we discover. And is that enlightenment? That is. When we discover that, but not as an idea. Right. We, yeah, it's, a, it's totally, uh, totally visceral. It's a total shit. All of our beliefs become transparent to us. And we see it's all the clear line. So uh, the rising and falling, is that just grasping onto the idea of rising and falling. We work with what we've got, and what we what we have is a very, very deeply ingrained belief in the story of time, and it operates constantly, and we feel it pulling us. We can feel it operating. And so that's where we are. So to try to not have it be that way, that would be absurd. So we allow it just to be like it is. And we work with it. We work with the intervals that we that we experience. Whatever our experience is, we can notice, first of all, that it's, oh, the bardo of life, going to a dance or a party or going to the dentist or um, going for a camping trip at the coast. And you can notice the beginning of that, and then you can notice it has an ending. And through this process, you see attention has become more sublime. And we're like, oh, yeah, okay, so it, it started here and it ended there. And we're starting to see the endings of things. And this is one of the big reasons why we have so much difficulty recognizing timelessness. It's because we believe in continuity. We see it. We experience it. But when we, when we start to observe Bardo's, we see how it starts and then it ends. And then there's something else will start. And it will end. And then something else will start. And it will end. And as we see this, and then we do this practice for a while, it goes deeper. And then we start to notice that there are sub-bardos within those. Like there's going to the coast, there's packing the car, you know, um, setting up the tent. There's the moment of beginning to set up the tent, and the ending of setting up the tent. And we start to notice the endings. And, you know, you see, we... People that have been meditating for a long time, they just they can notice thought or or an arising of a mood. So the mood arises, you notice the beginning. And then you feel it dissipate. And so it, it becomes this more sublime process. We're moving on a continuum towards gross level delusion to less and less and less till we get to the point where it's all the clear light. And in a moment, we can recognize that. If we're no longer grasping, we see that everything is impermanent. There's nothing to grasp. So that, that subtle grasping quality ceases to operate. It ceases to fill the gap because we're not concerned anymore. We see clear light. It's all clear light. It's, all of it is consciousness. Oh, and I'm wondering also, is it you know, part of being in, you know, the 21st century. <laughs> you know, is it, is it different for, you know, a llama sitting in a cave in Tibet? It's really not different. It's the same. 
We have different things to work with here, however. Um, but the ultimate recognition is the same. It's always the same. If you go through all the traditions, and Joel does this all the time. Have you been here before? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. So Joel does this all the time. He brings in all the different traditions and shows how uh, awakening is the same. It's the same. So the final reality is the same. It's not, it's not someone's experience. It's the actuality. It's, it's beneath experience. It's beneath stories. It's beneath belief. I just want to say something about kids. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Joel said one thing one, a couple times I've heard him say that, that delusion is co a cosmological problem. We're born, we're born into it. So I can attest to that from my experience with my kids that this is how we start grasping and pushing away. And it's just the way, this is the way that we come in. But as far as the learning about the world, there's a real joy in that. Consciousness loves to have all this stuff. It's, you know, it, and so when, when kids get those, it's almost like insight. what we're talking about with awakening is sort of the ultimate insight. But there are little insights that we have when we understand something, when we understand our experience and we can kind of make sense of it. And that's joy. And, and so as kids learn about the world, it's actually creativity. It's, it's the nature of consciousness to create. Absolutely. And that joyfulness, that creativity, is part of learning about delusion. You know? But then it gets to a point where, well, that's just not, that's just not, that's not true. That's not enough. We're still not happy. And sometimes the, sometimes the creativity can be quite horrible. I mean, it can, it can manifest in these horrible ways where, oh, whatever, all your friends have died or... Some terrible, you're having some terrible pain or some kind of, you know, very difficult thing. But even then, that can be recognized. It's like beauty. There's a beauty even in that. Until one is awakened, it's not. And have this, there's this struggle and process. Through mindfulness, though, we put our attention on the pain and we can discover firsthand, it's not my pain. Because we're not self-centered around it, we begin to notice the world with its pain and all of the other beings that are suffering. And we, we feel this deep love and compassion with all of those other beings. It's worth it to have the pain. Because without it, we could never know that. We could never feel that, that degree of love. And you're right. We don't have to be fully awakened to see it. All we need is a certain degree of mindfulness. And through that process, it all starts to open. And we begin to really appreciate. It's like if you're self-centered, you can't appreciate in a full and total way. But as the self-centeredness becomes lessened, then we have more and more appreciation. So it doesn't have to be completely no-self. There can just be this decreased grasping. And then we begin to appreciate our life. Yes? To me, it seems like a, a degree of attachment. Once, once I could say, okay, that's not my pain, that's not my joy, that's not my bargo, 
when, when I could find that moment, then, then I could appreciate it and love it. That's exactly right. Nothing else I could add to that. Yes. I have a question about time. Uh-huh. It's going to be one of those long ones. No. <laughs> <laughs> Although if you let me write something down, I'll... I guess, uh, <laughs> I, I get um, what you're saying about how the past and the future is just in our mind. That it's, it's our belief in these things that makes it seem like time is real, but it's not. So my question is... Uh, while I can understand how my mind can do that, and my mind can create a continuity of events because it's my mind kind of doing this, the thing I don't quite get, and this kind of came up in the last retreat, is the orderliness of the universe, the orderliness of our world. And the thing that most makes it seem orderly is not my mind connecting this event to that event to that event, but that we're all doing it. And that all our minds are connect, or quote, all our minds that the world itself is connected such that it's like my past and your past are the same. We both saw the same car accident, we both saw the same person taking the hospital, and you actually went there the next day to help her, right? So it's not just, I mean, it doesn't seem like just a belief that I can sort of observe, oh, I see how I'm connecting these things. It's happening between people and between other things in the world outside of my own immediate uh, experience. There's a lot of um, belief in that. A lot. Yeah. And that would need to be looked at. But I would say this. It's all one. There's only one consciousness. You know, we sit here, we have a room full of people. Everybody's me. But it's not true. This is a room of, it's just consciousness communing with consciousness. That's all this is. The, all of the, the rest of it is story. And it's beautifully done. Beautiful creativity. Our... Belief systems and our stories just go on forever, and they're, they're quite beautiful. But this is one of the values of doing mindfulness practices. We see they go on forever, and we never reach the truth. Because the mind cannot tell us the truth. The truth is before we ever start. It's right here. This. So one thing that we discover as we do our mindfulness practice and it becomes more sublime and we begin to see that everything is arising and passing away and we see then, we recognize the clear light as we described. We recognize it. We wake up. We discover as we said a moment ago, that the clear light is all that this is. There is nothing but the clear light. And that it is what is aware. The clear light that we see, when we recognize it is our own mind, we recognize that this space between thoughts is aware. It is what's aware. It's not some self. It is the space itself that is aware. Did that, did that, did that. Um, <laughs> um, so, 
I, one last thing I wanted to talk about here was Joel, in his account of awakening, in his book, Make It Through the Gate, we can find these very principles. And if you recall, those of you that have read the book, um, I'll, I'll, you don't have to have read it. You recall the passage where Joel was in the Mill Creek Motel, you know, this little dingy motel, and he had this little book, um, what was it, Zen Bombs? Paul Rips. Yeah, Paul Rips' uh, book, Zen Bombs or whatever. And he was reading through uh, Shiva's advice to his consort, Debbie, and one of the um, little bits of advice was this one. At the moment of sleep, when sleep has not yet come and external wakefulness vanishes, at this point, being is revealed. So between falling asleep and sleep, at the moment that the external wakefulness vanishes, we're in between bardo states. The bardo of being awake, the bardo of being asleep, in between. And this was the moment he recalled, just as he was falling asleep, he recalled this passage, and he looked, and he saw that everything was his own mind. And as he writes in his book, I jump up, turn on the light, and look around. Sure enough, I no longer see through a glass darkly. The veil has been lifted and the glass is cleared. No, more than cleared, it has vanished. He's referring to the, the dark glass that he had always been looking through. And writing about this some months later, I'm going to read you this quote from, it's also from uh, his book, Naked Through the Gate. He says, death, then, is not something to be conquered as I had supposed, but merely recognized as the disappearance only of a finite image, not an individual entity at all, in an infinite consciousness. Yet, paradoxically, this recognition cannot take place until the experience of I as an individual entity itself disappears or has died. I discovered the death of all death, which is to say eternal life, not as the indefinite extension of the life of a particular body, mind, or spirit, or soul, or any other thing in time, but as the true life of consciousness that precedes time and every other temporal restriction. That puts it very well. Good teacher. <laughs> so, any further questions, comments? Yeah, Bill. It's uh, interesting that you would speak of this today. Last night, before I went to sleep, a uh, thought ran through my mind. Well, Tom's going to talk to me. I had no, didn't know what you're going to talk about. But I had this. It appeared to be a dream at the time, but it seemed now it was more than a dream. You spoke about the light of consciousness, the light of awareness. Well, what uh, was occurring was I, I looked, and first there was a womb, and there was a baby there. And I looked again, and there was this bright light. But it appeared to have a dark 
uh, a circle completely surrounding it, and then the circle began to collapse, and there was nothing but this bright light. And that's what you pointed to today. And this, I, that was a wonderful pointing, you know, you're talking today. And I realized everything is happening now in this moment. But yet, I thought this synchronicity of things, just pay attention, as you've said, or just pay attention. And I thought that was rather astounding. It is. It sounds like a little, yeah, synchronicity. Um, one thing I want to point out, though, about the light, because when we talk about light, we think, well, it's like a bright light, but it's, and that's a metaphor, of course. I mean, we like the way you describe it. But, but be aware that this is the light of awareness itself. Words just fall away when you really start to look at this. Because if you ever try to imagine what your consciousness, what your awareness is, just in this moment, what is it? It's what gives everything light. What allows you to see and to know. You just added the words to point, you know, to the vision or whatever it was. Yes. Yes. It's the nameless, the unborn. Abdullah. Yes, uh, I have two questions there related. At the end you mentioned when I disappears or no longer. And the other one is, uh, in the last retreat you talk about Shankara, saying when the mind is emptied of its contents, then it's like picking up a fruit. So I wonder if this emptying or vanishing, or I mean, do they really vanish? Or what is this idea of emptying the mind? When we're talking about seeing that everything is this radical impermanent, we recognize we don't exist in a mental way. We recognize what we already are. Objects are not objects. They are this clear light of reality. Okay. Yeah, Christy. Well, this is kind of a... Um, when you were talking earlier about everything's beautiful and perfect, I can't remember exactly how you put it. So, you know, of course, my mind goes to the oil spill and... and I don't know, what is the perfection now? You know, Dr. Wolf had this high indifference, and, and this was a very difficult point for him. He basically didn't care in, in, in a certain way. He always wanted to retract the words high indifference. It, it created so much confusion, because he, you know, he was a very compassionate guy, he very much cared about all of the you know, suffering. And he was, even on his deathbed, his last words were something to the effect, you know, I, all I want is to save all sentient beings. So. The thing about practice and mindfulness is that we don't turn away. And really, it's allowing all of this to show itself as it actually is. That informs consciousness of its truth. We begin to see all of this suffering, all of this difficulty. That's the suffering that takes us to the truth. It drives attention. We want to feel it, we want to see it, we want to know it exactly as it is. And it's through this process we start to recognize what is already here, what is already operating, and we see it as it truly is. 
It's perfect. Just as it is. The oil spill. All of the mayhem. All of the genocide. It's not casting a judgment. It's just recognizing it's what is. We do what we can. If there's something you can do, send money to organizations, make phone calls to congresspeople, and the rest, you allow it to be just as it is. And you feel it. You let it be. Is this tiny, but what Matt said was that a child a child enjoys its challenge to and move. So it, it, and consciousness enjoys the challenge. So it's consciousness enjoying the challenge of these major things. Is that it? In a sense, yeah. Consciousness loves all of its forms. It's true. All of its forms are perfect. And that is because, you know, there is no death. There's so much suffering and struggle around the idea that we're going to die. But it turns out, it's all just the infinite faces of God. It's just the one. We, you know, we, we live in delusion and this uh, imagination of the way things are. And, you know, it's there. I, we can't say that it's bad that these people are suffering because for them... This is their path. Not because we want it that way or that because we don't want it that way. It's just, it's what is. And so everyone is a manifestation of God, is God, ultimately. And, is, and every one of them has their path. And as horrific as it may appear, they have that to work with. And of course, our compassion we go out and we do everything we can to help them. But ultimately, but if we push and pull on it, then we suffer. This is where the, the teachings save us. Right. Because there is no one that suffers. Once we awaken, you see, there is no one. And even before awakening, we recognize the delusion enough that we, when we get involved and we do some pushing and pulling and we feel that pain, that becomes the object of our mindfulness. We feel it just as it is. Consciousness loves to awaken. You know, it's like a game of hide and seek for consciousness. It's hiding, and then somebody calls, Ollie, Ollie, auction free! And you start to find your way back, but there's all these cul-de-sacs and stories, and they suffer, and they feel dreadful, and that's the call for mindfulness. We start to notice what they are. We see it's just mind, thought, emotion, story. Okay? Okay. You're welcome to stick around and uh, have some tea. And until we meet again, peace to you all.